Welcome to another episode of the SADM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ajaz. I will be your host today. And I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Lee Patterson, who is the department chair at Brody School of Medicine, East Carolina University. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start at the very beginning, Dr. Patterson. What drew you to the field of emergency medicine? Well, I think I'm probably like a lot of physicians who went into emergency medicine. I wasn't sure what I wanted to give up. With the emergency medicine, I got to keep all the patients, almost all the conditions, at least in some part of it. I think the variety for me is what really drew me to it. I like the tactical problem solving in the ED, although the last couple of years have had quite a bit of that. But between the patients and the challenges, I really enjoyed it. Okay. And I want to now transition a little bit to your some of your professional development mm-hmm. over the years that led to your chairship. I saw that you completed in the past the executive leadership in academic medicine for women. It's a fellowship, I believe. Mm-hmm. What are some of the themes that were covered as part of this curriculum, and how has that opportunity helped you in your role as a chair? I've had the pleasure of interviewing a few other chairs who mm-hmm. got through the similar course, uh, so I want to get your thoughts in terms sure. of what you learned. So the Elam Fellowship is run out of Drexel University. It is targeted to women in academic medicine. There were a couple of key themes I found very helpful. The first big theme is understanding yourself. What are your tendencies? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you bring to the role? Because we're all very different in that. And one of their biggest lessons for many of us was thinking about your weaknesses and how you might balance them. For example, I'm a very global thinker. I'm not a very sequential thinker. You need both in this space. In recruiting people who work with me, recruiting my finance person as a chair, I need someone who balances out the weaknesses in me. It's very important for me to have people around me who are not exactly like me or have that same vision and approach, but that I can create a team that looks at problems differently so that we don't have gaps and holes in our analyses and our efforts. One of the other themes that they had, or one of the other strengths that they have in that program is they create a cohort for you from your region, but not from your institution. And we continue to meet. So my cohort's been meeting for three years now. Once a month, we meet virtually. And it was a group that really helped me as a chair get through the pandemic. I was an interim chair for about a year when the pandemic hit. And my medical school was also having a lot of stresses on its own to deal with. And and having someone to talk to who understands the challenges but is not in your space doesn't get lost in the the minutia of what it is to be EM. It was just such a wonderful thing to have these people I can call I have this group of people that are my team, that are my sound board. Those are two really important things I think that fellowship stressed for us. That's amazing. I'm glad there has been so many useful themes that you've been able to apply directly to your role now. I, I want to also talk about one of your previous roles. I saw that you had previously served as the Associate Dean for Faculty Development at your School of Medicine. So what are some of the challenges for junior faculty compared to mid-career faculty compared to senior faculty over the course of their careers? Sure. Faculty development, or at least people management, is probably one of the biggest roles a chair has. So I loved that part about faculty development, or bringing that with me into my current role. I think for all of us, our biggest challenge and mistake we make is struggling with what counts. Everything we do matters. Everything matters somewhere in to some patient, to some student, to ourselves, but it doesn't all count. And understanding what counts, what counts for advancement, what counts for getting paid, what counts for being a faculty member. If you don't understand that or understand that balance and that stress, you get off track quickly and you can really stumble. Junior faculty often make that mistake of saying yes to everything, not understanding how to decide what they should be doing next. 
I think for EM physicians, we're generalists, most of us, after we finish our training, and we could be good in so many places in a medical school or a hospital, operations, education, the, the classic ones, but we didn't get to explore those roles in residency, so you have to try them on as a junior faculty member. You have to find that best place that fits, and you really have to do a lot of analyses of how am I going to be useful and helpful in those first couple of years. I think for mid-career faculty, the challenge is sometimes finding the next challenge. Your career will have five acts, kind of five phases. Your residency is really your first act. But much of what we do in residency in medical school is train you to be a clinician, how to succeed in just taking care of patients. But that won't be enough to carry you through the whole career. You're going to have to have new challenges, and you're going to have to let go of previous roles. And mid-career faculty, I think, struggle with that a lot. Certainly many mid-career folks stagnate. They don't know what to do next. And many institutions put all of their faculty development efforts very heavily weighted towards junior faculty. We don't work with our mid-career folks like we need to. So I can see people stagnate in that space. I think senior faculty really struggle with those later career transitions. How do I remain useful? What do I do next when I am nearing the end of that big act three, when I am no longer competitively productive as a clinician or a researcher? How do I find what's next for me? And how do I match up with a school or a hospital's needs with the skills I still have? I'm very passionate faculty development because there's this huge brain trust in our physicians who are over 55. And yet we have all these problems and these people who aren't doing the thing that they train to do anymore, but they could be applied to the problems, and we really struggle to retrain people or to help them get ready for that next phase. Now, I love the, the earlier point that you mentioned there about determining what matters and what counts, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're an expert in this. Finding that perfect blend of both of those and for junior faculty, for mid-career faculty, for senior faculty, and obviously they have, as you probably mentioned, different challenges depending mm -hmm. on where they are in their careers, but I, I love that point you make about trying to find that balance of what it matters and what counts and knowing that sometimes they're not necessarily synonymous with each other. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. It's very insightful. Transitioning a little bit now to the elephant in the room. A few years ago, we had the workforce report come out that had that predicted that it might be about 10,000 surplus of emergency physicians in 2030. More recently now, within the last few days, we've matched the results from emergency medicine where there was over 500 unfilled uh, spots prior to the so. What are your thoughts regarding that initial workforce report? And then we'll dissect a little bit of how we got here in terms of with the more recent match results. Well, when the workforce report came out, I was honestly a little frustrated and surprised. I am in a very rural area of North Carolina, east of Interstate 95. And although there are multiple residencies in North Carolina, my region that I serve, which is about 29 counties and nine hospitals just in our system, is not saturated. And my residency at our institution has been there 40 years, and we're still not saturated in that area. So I think there were a couple of things that were a real challenged looking at that. At the time it came out, I had a group of faculty who had paused their retirement plans because of the pandemic. And I think we saw this in faculty development. Many people nationwide really paused that. I don't know what I would do if I retired right now. So they put it off a little bit. But you could see it was going to happen. And if you look at the history of our specialty, our first round of physicians are 65 now. The first people who trained in those first dozen or so residencies are now hitting retirement age. I don't think we had 
a good rationale for assuming a fixed flat retirement rate. I think we're going to see an uptick in our retirement in the next two to three years. We paused it, and now I'm seeing retirement in the regions that I serve. It's going to, to get bigger for us. The second thing about the workforce report that was hard for me was, again, coming from a rural environment, the notion that an increased number of physicians available looking for work will naturally spill into people picking rural careers, and that is not a valid assumption. Uh, we know in, our medical school is very much focused on getting primary care into our rural region, and we know that the number one predictor of assuming a role in going to work in a practice in a rural area is growing up in a rural area. And the second piece is training it a part of your experience in that rural area. So you can't make more in physicians and fix my job. We are looking at that in a very different way. I'm looking at split training because rural or resource poor environments need a very well-trained physician. You can't just train someone in a community and have them do that. An academic center actually can partner with rural and get where you need to be the only physician in that room. There's some concerns about that. I think if we're honest and look at ourselves through the lens of medical students' eyes, it looks hard to be us right now. It does. And other specialties don't look so hard. We're wearing it. We can't hide it from anybody what it's like to be downstairs. I don't think we should apologize for that because it's very honest work we're doing. It's not pretty. Some days it's frankly ugly, but it's very honest, and it's very useful, and it is still very, very noble to be doing that. So I, I don't think we should apologize to the students, but I do think we have to use this match experience to reflect for our hospitals, hey, this is going to hurt us in five years. We're going to see an uptick in our retirements, and this population won't be there to fill in and backfill. And you've got to help us now eliminate some of the things that residency is real stressful barriers. You've got to work on these things now or you won't have your safety net in five years. It will be severely threatened and it already is fraying in that space. I mean, for me as a chair, I intend to be very aggressive for our region in the next two years in recruiting because I do expect to see a gap at three, four, five years. I have some concerns that not every program based on its leadership may be able to produce the physician I need to hire to work in a critical access hospital. I think my own institution, my own network of hospitals needs to be more flexible about the roles we're going to offer, really intentionally creating split positions where we anchor you in a community and yet still have you at the medical center for part of your time so that we can preserve your skills. But I think it's a real challenge. We lost some good candidates to anesthesia and orthopedics. We've always shared students who had blended interest in that. I I think we're gonna see anesthesia have a couple of good years that we used to have for that. And I think we're gonna have a bit of a reckoning as a specialty with what are we going to allow to continue to stay open. That will be a very hard conversation for us that we're just beginning to think about. You've made so many great points there. Starting off to talk about the rural medicine aspect of the workforce and then the workforce distribution issue. There's been a few other articles since that original workforce report from a few years ago that highlighted that exact geographical desert, essentially, of rural medicine, right? As you probably mentioned, that residents aren't practicing in rural medicine after residency because most of them didn't train in those areas. The problem is it being that you end up practicing, you train in a residency that is largely in an urban or community area, and you largely end up practicing in a similar area, and don't unless you're from that original area, as you were mentioning, mm-hmm. if you grew up there, you'll go back more likely. But if you don't have that exposure, you're not likely to end up practicing there. And I think that's one of the things 
overall as emergency medicine, our specialty can do, whether there's a surplus or if there's going to be a shortage, whatever that looks like, that prediction model, having that aspect of being able to branch into board-certified emergency physicians in those rural communities that our patients so desperately need is going to be one of the things that we can definitely do as multiple national organizations to help advocate for those areas to, of need that they definitely are. And then now talking a little bit about mm-hmm. the last few years of match results, we practiced through COVID for the last few mm-hmm. years. It has been ugly, as you have appropriately mentioned. Some days have been just absolutely brutal in terms of the boarding, the shortages in terms of nursing staffing. And our students have seen that as well. And they might not initially have been exposed to that when, during the early phases of the pandemic, but now they're also rotating in the EDs and they're seeing that firsthand, the typical environment that we're in. I love that you mentioned that it's so noble, right? Like what we do with the service mission, the orientation that we have in terms of we're there for the patient, we're there for them on the worst days, anyone, anytime, anywhere. Like that always holds true, regardless of if you're practicing in a rural area, if you're practicing in an urban ED or a community setting or a county setting, what initially drew us to the specialty are still true. So I really appreciate you at least shining a little bit of the light in terms of highlighting the issues that rural medicine is facing in terms of being able to recruit as well as to train residents to practice after residency in those areas as well. So really appreciate that. Now, I want to get your thoughts. You know, we talked, we talked about jobs and residency in a little bit already. From your aspect as a chair, what advice would you provide to residents when they're starting their job search after residency? What would you tell them when they're looking for their first jobs? Well, I think... One of the first advice I give to anyone looking for a job, whether your students looking at residency programs or residents looking at look at the people you're gonna work with and the person you're gonna work for. Don't work for anybody you don't trust. Right off the bat, I would say you have to you have to go with that gut. But I think when you're analyzing that job and thinking about how do I convince somebody I'd be a good fit for that job, I look for somebody who's flexible. There's a little bit of insight into themselves and what they know and don't know what their program strengths and weaknesses were and who some of my favorite candidates have been people who've asked me, how do you succeed in this program? What are some of the traits of your faculty who've been successful? How do you think people can set that first year up to be very successful? And that first year, you really set some of the habits you're going to have for your entire career. You know, and how you approach that first year, you don't have to get it all done. You have to approach it thinking about how am I going to become academic in my mindset and in the way I structure my life, the way I structure my approach to work. I think for many people, knowing what each job you're looking at judges before you get there is very helpful. Do they have criteria for advancement, whether it's on a tenure track or a fixed term clinical faculty track? What does that job recognize and advance you for? Because if you have a mismatch, then it's not a good fit, even if they're good people. You need to know that even before you get to work. I like seeing people have kind of a flexible approach to their job. The last two years have no predictor. There's nothing we could look and go back five years to say, here's what explains these two years. In these two years, while we're beginning to level off in the patients that are coming into ED, I still don't have a good picture about what next year is going to look like. And I'll be honest, some months I don't know what next month is going to look like. I need faculty who are okay to take a deep breath and relax and say, okay, we're here together. We'll see what happens and what comes with it. If you don't feel like that place is the kind of place you can do that, again, it may not be the right job for you. That's what I'm looking for. Can you join me and take a deep breath and know that next week is going to be what it is and we may not be ready for it. I think 
I also really encourage young faculty and residents when they're looking for a job to think about asking what an institution needs and what it's looking for. Again, we're generalists and there's so much work to be done. If you just know, hey, I want to be academic, I want to create this career, I want to be around learners, I want to be around this growth, we can probably pair you with a problem and set you up for career success <laughs> for the next several years if you're open to saying, what needs to be done? I find that people who come to that job so early on in those first two years in their career with an almost rigid view of this is what I want to do and this is how I've decided I'm going to do that. We might be a perfect fit. You might be exactly what I need in the puzzle piece that I'm missing. And somebody else who's a little more like Plato than a puzzle piece is going to be able to succeed a lot better. And so that's what I talk to people a lot about when they're thinking about things academically. I know there are many people who are much more experienced than I am talking to about the concrete part about this contractor, that contractor, what the hours are. I think when you're looking in academics, particularly if your job is working for an institution, a state institution, there won't be much flexibility there in those particulars. Those will be fixed and those will be set, and many of us can't negotiate on some of those elements. If you're looking in the private sector or you're looking for a for-profit school, Faculty, you may have more, may have more flexibility with that, but those are those are discussions people have much elsewhere. I, I think the fundamental approach of what are they looking for, how useful can I be, what challenges do you need, where where do you need somebody to go? And then as a chair, having somebody say to me, where do you need somebody today? I'd like to go there. It is probably <laughs> some of the highlight of the week. I think some days. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you so much for that. Just to wrap up our conversation, I want to give you this opportunity in terms of, you've talked a lot about rural medicine and the importance of that. You said you're planning on hiring aggressively in the next couple of years for what you anticipate the next three to five years will look like. Tell us a little more about the region that you're practicing in so that the listeners who are considering practicing in rural medicine, why they should consider rural medicine. Absolutely. Eastern North Carolina encompasses 29 counties between Interstate 95 and the Atlantic Ocean. And Pitt County, where our academic center is located, is not technically rural, but just about everything else around it. I have a 45-minute commute to work through tobacco fields and cornfields. It's very peaceful. It's much more peaceful than my commute was when I lived in the city. And it's about the same length of time when I'd commute across town in Philadelphia back when I was a fellow. But it, it has a collection of hospitals I think many people haven't seen. So we have an academic medical center. We have several community hospitals. That looks like what you think a hospital looks like. You can have your appendix removed. You can go on a ventilator if you need to. Several of them can have a baby. At three of our hospitals, and potentially four, they're critical access hospitals. So the ED physician might be the only physician in the hospital for much of the day, and subspecialty services aren't available. DUs are often not available. Your partner might be a hospitalist. You may have a hospitalist in the hospital available, and you might have general surgery some days of the week, but you don't have everything you need. And that's what we mean by resource poor. For us, we have this year rolled out an initiative to take all of our hospitals and create really a service line approach, which is a little bit different. It's our only service line that's not anchored around a disease state. To try to facilitate that, collectively use that network to push care out from the academic medical center. So why would you want to come work in a resource poor environment or even in a place where you would have to commute? It's peaceful. For me, I trained at Cherry Hospital. I worked in Philadelphia. I worked in some urban environments. My ED feels like it always felt, but the space between my ED and my home is much more restful. The community is very tight. I, I know many more people living in a small town than I do living in a city. 
And frankly, we're all so connected these days that you don't need to live in proximity in a big city to, to be connected. We're connected to you know, people now living in rural North Carolina than I think I was when I lived in, in a big city. And it's a very welcoming place. It is a very different environment in one sense of the practice setting, and that is that you are often more likely to know your patients, to know their family members, someone in the ED knows them. There's a much closer connectivity. Delivering bad news, good news, when you do get to do that in the ED, there's a much more emotional closeness to your community. You know your community, and you find yourself advocating very differently than you did when, when I practiced in an urban setting that I didn't live in. It wasn't my neighborhood, it wasn't my community. And, and you can't separate yourself quite as much when you live in an, in an urban center. It has different challenges, it still has a lot of poverty, it has a lot of struggle with access to it. Different reasons go into that. Different reasons go into that. Um, access to care is an even, even bigger barrier uh, than it is, and, and lengths of transport for care. You're separating families when you can't bring care all the way to the community. Some of our families can't come to the hospital with a patient because it's two hours away and they've got other kids or they've got challenges like that at home. And I, there's just a lot of meaning that you can find working in a community like that. Um, I think for many people it feels isolating. You think, well, what's happening out there? Why would I need to be trained and be out in that space? I will tell you when you're out in that space by yourself, you're it. You are doing everything in a trauma room that you had five other people in there when you were in training. You're doing everything in medical resuscitation. All the procedures are yours. For those of us who love the procedures, they're all yours. There's nobody to share it with out there. It's all in your space. And you know your team really well because there's many people who work. I believe in you too. I just loved it, and it isn't what I thought I trained to do. So I know other people can adapt too. Well, thank you so much for that, Dr. Sure. Patterson. I really appreciate your time today and for sharing sure. all your incredible insights. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.